Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And from the New Testament, this will be our sermon text, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 7 through verse 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. An example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, 
And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Lord, you have spoken. And I pray that you would reorientate our hearts and our lives and minds to what is truly precious today. Pray that we would not pursue steadfastness, but that we would pursue you and you would make us steadfast. Help us to see Jesus, for he is the sum of all that you have to say to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to gather together uh, with you today. Uh, just so you recall, on the webpage you can find uh, a sermon outline that will have the points of the sermon, and you can also find um, sermon notes or food for thought that you can use for study uh, later on in the week uh, if you want. Uh, today we get to come back to the same passage that we looked at last week, and as I was thinking, it's really good to be here on the Lord's Day. Uh, particularly this past week, I've been looking forward to it. Because uh, I have needed to uh, hear the word of the Lord. I have been inundated with the word of man this past week, with its varied responses to the world and what's going on around it. It's frustrating. It's hard to know what is true and what is untrue. Um, but there's no better counter to the words of man than the eternal word of God. And I was thinking again of this from Psalm 33, where there the psalmist says, For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfastness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of peoples, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. This is why we come to the word of the Lord, to find a word that stands forever, and that a counsel that will never be frustrated. We come to the Lord then today, and we do so coming back to the same passage we looked at last week. Last week we looked at it from a theological perspective in a way to counter uh, what I called the great illusion of verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5 where there the illusion was that this world is all there is. And I wanted to counter that with the uh, reminder in James that no, this world is not all there is. There's a great reality coming. And that great reality is the coming of the Lord and the judge who is now standing at the door. And in fact, that is near to us even now. But today I want to take a little bit of a pastoral approach to these verses that are before us because the anticipation of those events, the coming of the Lord and the fact that we will face judgment, the anticipation of those events necessarily impacts Christian maturity. If you think about uh, the first part of verse 7, James begins by saying, Be patient, therefore. 
I think before we actually dive into the text, there's some things that we just need to think through a little bit. What is the connection between verse 7 and verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5? The case made that by some that suggests that um, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5 were written to a group of unbelieving um, wealthy people and not to believers who are wrestling with their faith. I think that case for me is unconvincing. It doesn't make sense to me. If you read through the whole book of James, you will find time and time again that he addresses the concerns of both the poor and the wealthy. He contrasts them. He, he challenges us to think through our response to either being one of them or viewing one of them. He talks about our response to abusing wealth or misusing it. But those who conclude that chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 is addressing wealthy unbelievers, they almost universally then come to the conclusion that the issue being addressed in verses 7 to 12 is the issue of a response to injustice. And that the whole of verses 7 to 12 then is interpreted or understood in terms of patience in the face of injustice. But I'm not convinced that verses 5 or, or chapter 5 verses 1 to 6 is written to the unbelieving wealthy. I think it's written to professing believers who struggle with sin like anybody else, who struggle with the issues and the concerns of wealth. And even in these days in which we live, struggle with the temptation to hoard or to amass wealth for themselves this side of eternity. And therefore, as you think that way, that, that it's written to unbelievers, then that therefore casts a much broader shadow or a longer shadow than just over those verses. In fact, as I think about the therefore in verse 7, I understand that, or I'm beginning to see it as James is beginning to bring his letter to a conclusion. And that is, therefore, actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the letter. And in fact, you can find that because what does James begin addressing at the very beginning of the letter? He says, There count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's what he's addressing now again. And he talks about how we need to be able to manage that trial so that when it ends, we will be mature. And in fact, in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And then, even in verses 5 to 8 there, he talks about if we need wisdom to ask from God, but he chastises the temptation towards double-mindedness. And I think that's what James addresses in chapter 5, verse 12. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He addresses this waffling about our conviction in the coming of the Lord and the way it should influence our lives. And so as I look at the therefore of, 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 of verse 7, for me, it encompasses everything that James has written to this point because he's now tying all the loose strings together. He's talking about patience and steadfastness in references to the broader challenges of the Christian faith, of what it looks like to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. He's talking about what it means to live in a hostile world, a world that is opposed to the ways of God and the thinking of God. 
He's pulling all the challenges that rest before us of hanging in there when times are difficult. All the temptations that we face within us and without in the world that is around us. And he's saying to this congregation, this group of people he's writing to, he says, look. Look, the coming of the Lord is near. He's right at the very door. Don't buckle now. Don't give in now. Don't become impatient now. Don't turn to each other and grumble. He's close. It's near. It could happen soon. And in light of the coming of the Lord, then these two characteristics of patience and steadfastness begin to bubble to the surface. And you say, well, how? Why is that the case? Well, because there's a certainty to the coming of the Lord. It is a promise that is reiterated again and again and again throughout the scriptures. There is a soon coming day when patience and steadfastness will be rewarded. The coming day of the Lord is near. The judge is standing at the door. Your patience will be rewarded. Your steadfastness will receive a crown. As I've been thinking this through, one of the things that is driving people crazy right now in the time in which we are living, in the days in which we are living, is trying to exercise patience in a context of uncertainty. It's trying to be steadfast under pressure and realities that are indefinite. It's very hard to cultivate patience and steadfastness, in other words, in uncertainty and in indefinite times. Patience is almost impossible to cultivate in a, in a context of uncertainty. So James is saying, listen, there are these two certain events on the horizon, very near, in fact. The coming of the Lord and the judgment that will follow it. In light of that certainty, hang in there. If we wanted to look at these verses through a grid of various temptations, I think we could do that. Uh, temptations that, that relate to being a Christian in these last days in which we live. This, this, this last age in which we live. You and I are sojourners. We're exiles. This is not our home. And so what are some of the struggles that we face? Well, James summarizes them. He says one of the temptations that we face is to impatience. Therefore, he begins verse 7 with be patient. That is the way we counter the temptation towards impatient. The way we resist it. Well, we are patient. There's also this temptation to become faint-hearted, to begin to waver and to give up. So he says in verse 8, establish your hearts. Put inflexibility in place. Ground them. How do we do that? By looking ahead to the certain coming of the Lord. There's a temptation to grumble. And so he says, do not grumble. Boy, that is really a reality in many of our homes today, isn't it? This dial has been turned up of grumbling. Why? Because of the uncertainty in which we live. And so we turn in on each other. And James is saying, listen, if you begin to look beyond that to the certain coming of the judge, you will stop grumbling. It has a curbing effect on your grumbling. I think the fourth temptation is the temptation to give up. I think that's the opposite of steadfastness. 
And so James reminds us in this Christian journey that we're in, in this walk that all of us have embraced, who have, who have found Christ to be our Lord and Savior. He says, don't give up. Don't buckle. Don't give in. Remain steadfast. Keep your eye on the goal. And then the final one is to waffle. The temptation to, because we lose sight of the coming of the Lord, then we start living like everybody else, and our focus starts to be like everyone else around us in the world. And so as I've wrestled with these verses this past couple of weeks and thought about patience and steadfastness, I have been reminded that they do flourish in adversity and in suffering, but only when adversity and suffering have a purpose or a goal. And James is saying that the garden of patience and steadfastness is maintained by a sure and certain reality that Jesus Christ is coming again. One of the contributing factors to impatience, before we actually turn to the text finally, is a failure to truly believe in and trust in the sovereignty of God and the promises of God. I often say to myself and rehearse in my own head uh, Romans 8:28, and many of you know that, that we believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called by his name. And I often say that to myself, and I believe that in my heart. And I say that I believe everything, even suffering and disappointment and tragedy and delays and interference from others are ultimately under God's sovereign control and that he knows what he's doing. But sometimes the simple fact is that what I say and what I believe doesn't change the way that I behave. And that's what grieves my heart. It grieves my heart sometimes when I'm as selfish as I am. It grieves me sometimes that even more I don't have confidence in the goodness of God and the truth of his word, that I would trust him when things don't go my way. So that's why I'm impatient. It grieves my heart that I'm so short-sighted that I lose focus on the coming of the Lord. This is why we have so many admonitions in the Testament, in the Bible. Watch for it. Look for it. Wait for it. Keep your eyes focused on it so that we don't become impatient. So the first thing that we tackle then is the nature of the Christian life. James begins with this imperative, be patient. And then he gives this amazing illustration. I don't know if you listened as, as Pastor Barry read it, but he focuses our attention on a farmer to help us understand the need for patience. Many in those days would have walked down roads that went through farmers' fields or beside farmers' fields or lived in towns that were surrounded by farmers' fields. And they would have understood the agrarian way of life. And James would have said to them, and he does say to them, look at them, observe them. He, he says that very clearly. He says, see the farmers. See how the farmer waits. That's his, he wants us to focus on that for a moment. To grab, and why? Why look at a farmer? He says, because he's patient. He has to be patient. He waits for the precious fruit that comes from the harvest. He, he, he starts by preparing the soil. 
And then he plants the seed. And then he waits for the early rains, which in those days would come in October, November. And they would germinate the seed. And then he would have to wait again for the later rains, which would cause the fruit to ripen. And then he, in all this time, he goes to sleep and he simply goes to bed and he doesn't know how it happens. He just knows that it does. But he trusts the cycle of nature. He trusts this, this thing that he's seen year after year after year. He, he knows these cyclical patterns and he, he grows in patience as he farms every year because he just knows that this world is so ordained in such a way that it will happen. And if he's a Christian farmer, he knows that even better. Because he knows that God has promised to send the early and the late rains. He trusts in the providence of God who says, I will supply for your food. So James says to all of us then, copy him. Be like the farmer. He waits for the harvest. What are we waiting for? The coming of the Lord. The judge who is standing at the door. And so we need to learn to be patient as we wait. For the Lord to return. Not to be agitated, not to be irritated, not to be frustrated by the circumstances around us, which if we look at them can become enormously frustrating them. Rather, we need to learn to wait for the providences of God to unravel. As the farmer waits for the seed to do what seeds do and the rain to come when the rain comes. To submit to God and be patient to him. You see, I think one of the only ways that we will grow in maturity as Christians is to grow in our confidence of the sovereign work of God. To grow in our confidence and trust the providential outworkings of God's plan. To rely on his wisdom. As Paul in Ephesians reminds us, he is a confident um, in the absolute sovereignty of God. Because there he describes the purpose of God's will. The plan of God for the fullness of time. God knows what he's doing. He knows where this world is going. We ought to have a confidence in the perfect wisdom of God. The only wise God. We ought to trust God's fatherly love for us. And so what James is saying to us is we are spiritual farmers in the world. And we need to depend on the sovereignty of God. We need to wait for the providence of God. We need to trust the word of God. We need to know that God knows what he's doing. It says the fruit of that is an established heart. It's fascinating to me. It's an established heart in contrast to a fattened heart in verse 5 of chapter 5. And the secret of having an established heart through patience is knowing that Christ is going to return. You see, the return of the Lord is the next big event on God's calendar. It's a cosmic event. It's a worldwide event. It's an age-ending event. It will be the culmination of God's plan for the fullness of time, held out to us again and again and again. So you say, well, how does that establish our hearts? Well, I think until that day comes, there's an incredible amount that you and I don't understand. Like seed. A farmer doesn't know really how a seed germinates and how it grows. He just knows that it does. He trusts the promise. And until the day that the various strands of your life and our life 
um, uh, or until that day when the Lord comes, our lives won't make a whole lot of sense. And so often in the various circumstances that we face, we ask the question, God, what are you doing? And that question won't make sense until the coming of the Lord and the fullness of God's plan in Christ Jesus is brought together, not only in the world, but also in our lives. And then he will say to us, now do you see what I'm doing? Now do you understand what I was up to in your life? Now do you see how I was directing the events of your family and of, of this, this island and of this province and of this country and of the world? You see, when Christ comes back, the plan of God will be fully manifest. And again, in this age, the details of our lives are being woven into this incredible picture we don't know what that picture is finally going to look like one now. But it's as if we were to go into the workshop of some great painter and see an incomplete painting. There might be a background. There might be a few splotches of paint here and there. And then we would say to him, well, that doesn't really make sense, does it? I am in a Bible study. And one of the attenders of the Bible study is an artist. And she has often incomplete art on, on, on an easel where we meet. And I look at that sometimes and I wonder, it's beautiful, but I don't know what it's going to be and I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But you come back weeks later and it's finished and you go, oh, that's what she was painting. And I think that it's also often with our lives as we come before God, God, this doesn't make sense. God, I don't understand what you're doing. But at the end, when Christ comes back, we will see the complete canvas of our lives. That is, I think, not only why we need patience, but also why we can be patient. Because we know that God has a plan that will be fulfilled at the coming of the Lord. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One individual that I was listening to this week said, you have a question you want to ask God, one thing that you really want to know, one thing that you want him to explain. When the Lord comes again, I do think our questions will be answered. And when he answers our question, I, I think probably most of us, our response will be, Lord, I, I never knew that's what you're up to. I never knew that's what you were doing in my life. If only I had have known or if only I had have trusted you more, I would have been more patient. I would have been quiet as I waited for you to complete what you were doing in my life. The doctrine of the Christian life is one of growth to maturity. And patience is what drives that promise or that process. The second thing that we see is the effect of the nearness of the judge. James describes that here. He says, don't grumble. Fascinating. Just Why that? Don't grumble. He said, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Why? Behold. There's that word again. Behold. Behold. The judge is standing at the door. It's another imperative. Don't grumble against one another. It's very much in line with what James says just a bit earlier in verse 11 where he says, don't speak evil against one another. Uh, verbal sins 
that seem to just pour out of our mouths. Like the very first thing that I read this morning as I went to my devotions was Numbers 11. And it says this, Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. And when the Lord heard this, his anger burned. Grumbling is not a good thing. If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you find there that Paul is recounting all the things that the people of Israel went through. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he gives this, this list about them, how these things were written for their examples. And he begins in verse 6. He says, Now these things took place and as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. <laughs> I'm not an idolater, we say. I guess I'm off the hook. And he says, well, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 of them fell in a single day. I think, well, I'm not sexually immoral. I'm pretty good in that area. He says, well, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Well, I haven't really tested the Lord in any way, in not a serious way. I kind of trust him. But then look at verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling is a serious offense. It is a sin. And James says, don't grumble. But notice the context in which he puts that. Don't grumble. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. In other words, the closeness of the judge has a direct impact on the way that we talk. Think about that. This is one of the side effects or one of the benefits of focusing and reminding ourselves that the Lord is coming again. Have you ever had the experience of walking into the room or into a room and all of a sudden the conversation stops? Body language changes. There's a bit of an uncomfortableness in the room. And you kind of sense that you were the object of their conversation. You were the object of what they were talking about. And you, you know that had they known you were about to enter, they wouldn't have been saying those things. They're, it's certainly a lot less likely. Well, in the same way, the judge is standing right at the door. And that notion or reminder to us that any moment that door could open, that it's that close. James said should have a temporary, temper, tempering quality or effect on the use of our tongues. Then James gives us some examples of steadfastness. He's transitioning in, in his patience to this notion now of steadfastness. This word steadfastness carries the, the meaning of bearing up under a heavy load. I kind of pictured, um, it was it Atlas, that Greek god that had the word, world on his shoulders, and he didn't buckle under that? So th that's what steadfastness and it carries the notion of. is It just not buckling, not giving up, not crumbling under the weight of stuff. In fact, in Revelation 14, 12, in light of what's going on in the world, the, 
writer there says, this calls for patient endurance. That's the same word, steadfastness, on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. See, Christian maturity is not only gained through patience, it's also evidenced through steadfastness. Remember, back in verse 2 of or chapter 1, James begins by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And then he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So James first points to the prophets. He says, Take the prophets, for example. Here's a call to us to follow in their footsteps, to learn from them, to see how they patiently endured, how they remained steadfast under difficult times. I I just went through a list of them in my head. I thought of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was a man that was threatened with death. He was a man that was thrown into a pit and sunk down into the mud. I think of Ezekiel who in the course of his ministry, his wife was taken from him and God says, I don't want you to mourn over this. Or Daniel who, who with amongst his friends was ripped out of his home and ripped away from his country and was sent to a foreign land. I think of Hosea who married a wife who was unfaithful to him. I think of John the Baptist who was thrown in jail for speaking the truth to a king and was eventually beheaded because of that. And as we think about these prophets, they may have been privileged, but they weren't protected. They may have been privileged, but they had to remain steadfast in their commitment to the Lord. What's James's point? Well, I think what he's beginning to drive home to us is there is a patience which looks ahead to the Lord's coming when everything is made clear. And then there is a steadfastness that helps us remain under a heavy load while we carry it to the end. And the prophets demonstrate to us something of steadfastness, of remaining under the heavy burden of proclaiming the word of the Lord, even through difficult circumstances. And then he says, take Job, for example. Notice, he says, behold. There's again this this word behold. It's like, would you look at the steadfastness of Job? Here's a guy you need to think about. Here's a a man that you need to look at his life and help that as you walk in steadfastness. He faced considerable strain and pressure, and yet he didn't buckle. Remember how his world was rocked. Pastor Pastor Barry read a little bit of that. How he lost his family, and then you go to chapter 2, and he lost his health. In both of those instances, in the first, he didn't sin with his mouth. And in the second, when his wife came and told him to curse, he says, shall we accept good from the Lord and not adversity? You look at verse, or, or chapter 3, verse 1, and immediately you see what, James, or what Job does is he curses the day that he was born. And for the next number of chapters in Job, you have Job saying again and again, I wish I had never been born. I wish I could be dead. I I wish God would take me. But then there's a switch that takes place in Job. And he no longer wishes for dead, but he wishes an audience with God. 
And so he has this battle with God. I just want to stand before you. I just want to present my case. I know you're perfect. I know you're righteous, but give me my day in court. And then we marvel how he maintains his integrity as his three so-called friends just berate him and, and speak untruths about him and decry his family, and he still hangs in there. We see how he doesn't buckle under attacks, and then we wonder how he can declare in the middle of his, his responses, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. I think that's his way of saying God's going to come back. God's going to make this right. But what, to what end was his steadfastness? I never see, saw this in Job before. But to what end was his steadfastness? Well, it says there, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You see, James or, or Job came to understand something. And he declares it as much in Job chapter 42, verse 5, where he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But then he says, and now I have seen you. You have heard of the steadfastness of, Lo, of, of Job, says James. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You see, loved ones, what James is telling us is we have the gift or the privilege of seeing something that Job never did. He knew nothing of what was going on behind the scenes. He knew nothing of the councils in the spiritual world. He knew nothing of the discussion between uh, the Satan and between God. He didn't, he didn't know any of that. But he remained steadfast. And James is telling us that the goal or the purpose of God in permitting Satan to inflict Job was to demonstrate conclusively that God is worthy of our hearts and our lives and our faith, even when everything imaginable goes south. Our health, our families, our wealth, our possessions, everything. Why? Because God is up to something. That's the secret of steadfastness. The purpose of the Lord. It's the confidence that life is not random. It's the confidence that God has a plan and a purpose to all things. It was only a few months ago when we went through the last chapters of the book of Genesis and saw how Joseph remained steadfast over 22 years of various ups and downs in his life, of threats to his very livelihood and his very life. And you remember that when his brothers finally came to him, he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. Why? Because God had a purpose. He says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then again, years later, when their father's father died, and again his brothers were worried. And they came to him, and again Joseph spoke to them, and he says, And you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, we need to understand that God has a plan and a purpose that will culminate in the return of Christ. And it is that what engenders steadfastness as we walk through the difficult circumstances of our life. It's the purpose of God and our confidence in that which nurtures steadfastness. 
See, we are incredibly privileged as followers of Jesus today. We can look back on the life of Joseph, read his story. We can look back on the life of Job, and we can look at that in, in, in many other circumstances. And we can be convinced as we look at those that God knew what he was doing. That even in the difficulties of their life, God had a purpose. And so should we, where Paul says in Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And therefore I know this, that God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. See, we are encouraged by these examples because we can read the story backwards from its conclusion. The scripture gives us hindsight on the lives of others so that we may have foresight on our own lives. You've glimpsed the purposes of God in Job's life. You can be sure that God has got an equally glorious purpose for your life. As the psalmist said, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And then finally, James says these words in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Many wrestle with this verse. I have too. What does James mean when he says above all? It's one way of saying this is the most important thing. When you've heard of everything else, think about this. And the rest then is, well, does this verse stand on its own? Does it refer to what's been said or does it refer to what's going to be said? The way that I look on it, and it is a clear reference to what Jesus said in Matthew Five is that it's simply a call, once again, to single-mindedness. You see, when they would make an oath in the days of Jesus, if they said the oath in a certain way, then they could say the oath, but they knew they could get out of it. But if they used other words in the oath, then that oath was binding. And so they could be deceptive. They could, they could deceive others with their words. What James is calling us to here is simply, do you trust God? Or do we not? Do we think one way today and another way tomorrow? Are we patient in dealing with others and remaining steadfast in the craziness of the world? Or do we fight God and wrestle with God and doubt his purposes? You can't have it both ways, James is saying. I find these to be significant words of encouragement for us today. Be patient, loved ones. Cultivate steadfastness. How? By keeping your eyes fixed on the heavens. By meditating and reminding yourselves and watching for the coming of the Lord. Your patience will be rewarded. Your steadfast, steadfastness will be rewarded. We will receive something of the compassion and the mercy of God. May God help us in these days in which we live to 
give a reason for our patience and our steadfastness. I don't know about you, but conversations you might be having with your family or with friends or with neighbors. I hope that as God's people, we are thinking a little bit differently. Our attitudes are being shaped by different realities. And that we might be able to say to people, you know, I don't understand it fully, but I know that as Jesus came once, God is going to come again one day. And he's going to make things right. He's going to reveal his purposes. And I'm thankful that I trusted in Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I have this growing confidence in me. And that is what gives me patience. That is what gives me hope. That is what helps me hang in there at this time. I can't think of a word that is more compassionate and more merciful to your neighbors or your family members who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Oh, may God help us this week to fix in our minds afresh the nearness of the coming of the Lord. Father, we come before you today, thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful for James as he begins to pull his book together and for the fact that uh, our patience and our steadfastness aren't to be nurtured in a vacuum, but rather they are nurtured by the sure and certain promise that we have repeated again and again and again that we are at the end of this age, that the coming of the Lord is near, and when he comes, all will be made clear. We thank you for this hope and this confidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.